and Scotland have gained their first victory over the old enemy since 1967. The Wembley fence is not yet up, so the fans have come over the barriers. Crowd invasions have been one of the reasons why fences have gone up everywhere and indeed are going up at Wembley. And you're really divided between appreciating the delight of the Scottish fans but not wanting to see the ground pulled apart like this. They've even knocked the goals down and broken the crossbar. Hello and welcome to the Sound of Football podcast. I'm Graham Sibley and as ever I'm joined by Jan Bilton. Hello. And Terry DeFellon. Hello. You may have noticed we weren't here last week. That's because Terry went on holiday. And we probably won't be here next week because I'm on holiday. But it's lucky because it's the international break. This is the first international break of the season just after the transfer window closes. It's time to get that little reset. All that sort of fizz and bubble of the first couple of weeks of the season is out of the way. You're getting a bit of that adrenaline rush is starting to go. And actually, I think this international break does give you a little bit of a tiny reset, doesn't it, Terry? Yeah, I, I don't like it when people complain about this international break coming so early in the season. It's like, oh, we just got the season going and now we have to go on international break. But at the same time, I do actually have a bit of sympathy for it. I do wonder whether or not there's some value in maybe looking at the October break and extending that maybe and having more fixtures in the October out. So maybe taking maybe a couple of weeks off in October and then giving everyone a chance to sort of like bed into the season. It also is quite good for the clubs as well because it gives clubs a little bit longer to decide whether or not to sack their coach, you know, in in, in, in the Albion season. So keeps managers in their jobs for a few more weeks. But I tend not to get too involved in the international break. But, you know, I don't really have a massive problem with it here. And I suppose, yeah, clubs that have had bad starts, it gives them an opportunity to sort of like go, whoa. Okay, let's just uh, let's just like do over, okay, and uh, and then hopefully that happens. I would like to do a study, uh, or I'd like somebody else to do a study to find out if that actually works. How many clubs that have bad starts to the season then sort of like have a better season after the first international break? I'm pretty certain that you'd find that not many clubs do actually. To be fair, it's a bit of a myth, I should think. I don't know about that. I think that if you're in a bit of a rut, then maybe just having a it's a bit like a, during a game when play is broken up. And you just, you know, you sit down and hold your leg for a bit just to break up the attacking play. It can reset the game a little bit, can't it? It's early um, in the season for that sort of thing, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, I know. No, I understand what you're anything, that, anything that breaks up a, a negative rhythm can can be all right. And as well as that, if you've got players in your team that um, aren't necessarily going to have a full run out at international or even have a run out at all, it actually gives them a bit of a rest, doesn't it? And a bit of a freshen up. So maybe it is a good time to do it if you're employed in football. But if you just do what we do and, and watch it, um, then it can be a bit of a pain coming as it does. Yeah, it's the content creators we have to feel sorry for here, Graham, because, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, like, <laughs> so they, they've got nothing to talk about apart from a handful of international games that no one's interested well, in. Well, of course, yeah. Were that the case that football just took a break for a while and, and all the <laughs> all the nonsense and the hullabaloo of football just stopped for a while? That would be really, really good, wouldn't it? But if you think about it, the last couple of seasons, you think early doors 
content creation is the easiest thing possible because so much is being talked about. But unfortunately, most of it is utter rot. Most of it is transfer speculation. And the rest of it is drawing conclusions after about three games, both of which are utter bunk. But there's a huge demand for content at this time of year and you've got to write something. Now, Jan, in our first podcast of the season i put the question and uh, it, it was such an insightful question that terry put it on a reel on instagram yes listeners i know it's not there on the end of the music at the end of the show but we do have an instagram i've really got to update that because that's now 10 years old that recording and uh, it's not even called twitter anymore so i better do that but yeah the question i asked was who's gonna have the more difficult time this season is it gonna be pochettino or postacoglu and, uh, well, that question was answered pretty quickly, wasn't it, in just the first few weeks of the season? Yeah, absolutely. I tied myself in knots, uh, which the listeners wouldn't have heard, thanks to your very generous editing. Thank you. Um, but uh, be prepared for a busy day tomorrow, Graham, because I'm no doubt I'm about to do that again. Um, so strap in. Clearly, Postacoglu has done something um, really special with Tottenham, hasn't he? And we, you know, it's only a few short months back that we were laughing at Tottenham and calling them a bin fire, which I think behind the scenes, it, those embers are still smouldering. But I think that certainly he's got hold of the team. It's probably helped that Kane went because he's, he's got a chance to put his own stamp on it. And he certainly has. But I'd urge some caution, though, because there's a good result, obviously, when they were away to Brentford. They beat I mean, Manchester United are not having the best time of it, are they? I think it's fair to say. But they beat them, they beat Bournemouth and they've beat Burnley. So I would suggest that when we come back at the end of the month, they'll have then played Arsenal and Liverpool and then we'll really know how good his season's going to be. Um, so that's what I'd, uh, I'd say on Tottenham. For Chelsea... Obviously, there's been a lot of change, hasn't there? I mean, across the whole of last season into the, the new season as well. There's a lot of new players in there. Of course, Pochettino's come in. Um, and I still think that he'll he'll achieve great things there. Whether it's going to be instant or not, I don't know. As I said, when you asked me the question the, the first time, I think there's real pressure on him to bring in a trophy, given how much of a spotlight that's been on Chelsea. But again, they lost to West Ham. They'd drawn against Liverpool in the first game of the season. They lost against West Ham, who were 10 men, which is pretty rubbish. You expect Chelsea to turn them over, but West Ham are doing all right under David Moyes, under David Moyes. Um, and then I watched the game against Luton and Sterling was incredible that game. And uh, he really, really did a good job. Looked like he was back to his best. And some pundits were saying he should be getting picked for England now, shouldn't he? After he'd, he'd scored, I think he scored two and got an assist in that game. Anyway, he was brilliant anyway. And then, of course, they brought crashing back down to earth at Forest. But uh, you could argue their start of the season has been a little tougher. So, again, I think... We should talk about this again in October. Mm, yeah, Terry, this is the problem. Isn't it? The last two seasons, we've fallen into this trap, haven't we? A couple of seasons ago, Arsenal had a terrible start, and we did a pod about them, and they've done pretty well since then. Uh, last season, we did with Man United, and they ended up what, third, didn't they, on the table. All right, they have got a load of problems that really are just, they're not even bubbling under the surface anymore. They're all, they're, they're like broken out all over the surface, haven't they? But are Chelsea like that, or is, are they going to have this breather at the international break and, and going to come back and completely transform the side, win six in a row, and, and everything will be fine? Well, I wouldn't like to predict that because, you know, as you know, we don't make predictions on the Sound of Football podcast, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if that didn't happen at all, to be frank. 
so many of those players are away on international duty anyway, so it's not like they're getting that much of a break or an opportunity to sort of like bond as a team. Uh, Pochettino's working through a roster of players and with all the players that have left and have arrived in the time that he's been there, he can't possibly know what his best 11 is. Uh, and I would suggest it could take him six games to figure that part out. If indeed he ever has a best 11, because he's got so many players, he's going to have to really look at it as more like a best 15 or 16 that he then rotates. And that's going to take an awful lot of work while at the same time trying to deliver. There's significant quality in that side. And Pochettino is a proven coach at Premier League level. Put those two together. And as long as you know, you know, he's left to, to get on with the job, you'd think that they'll have a decent season. But it might take a bit of a while before they do that. You, you would fancy them maybe to have a go in one of the cups, particularly if you're having a transition season and you're a historically top four team or a, or a championship challenging team, then maybe a, a cup might smooth things over a little bit. But I remain optimistic for the Chelsea project. In the short term, in the longer term, I'm, I'm less, less than certain that Todd Burley really knows what he's doing, to be perfectly honest with you. But perhaps that's another argument for another time. Tottenham are looking great at the moment. There's no two ways about it. They look like they're playing with the handbrake off at the moment and they're just enjoying it. It just looks like the last couple of seasons were all just a bad dream, doesn't it, Jan? So they do look a lot better already. They're playing with the confidence that Chelsea must wish they had. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I think there's probably more to come from them, if I'm honest. I mean, we were talking at the weekend, Grim, when we were saying about some of the best signings of the of the summer. And James Madison was yeah. uh, one of the players we talked about. Yeah, and you know, he's, he's a fine, fine player. And, you know, I think he'll just blossom there. And as well as that, I think Richarlison, there's a lot more to come from him. He hasn't scored a lot for Tottenham since he's been there. But... He was playing second fiddle to Harry Kane and he, he got one um, in the League Cup game they played. But, you know, if they can get him firing, because he's a very athletic, speedy, smart, skillful player, but he just hasn't delivered. So if they can get a song out of him, yeah, be good. I'm not sure. I'm, yeah? I, I can tell why he's here. I mean, he's here because he's incredibly good and managers look at him and say, this guy is the real deal. Mm. But I just don't think it works for him over here he, at Watford he, he looked like a square peg he, he went to Everton and was pretty much the same and now he's at Tottenham doing exactly what he's been doing at, at these other clubs as well you just feel like he's on the edge of being a 25 goal a season guy and it just doesn't seem to how long has he been over here now it's got to be five six years now yeah it's a while it's a while I mean, yeah I think we're in violent agreement I, I completely agree if you, yeah. if you can get him playing uh, or, or fitting in with the, with, the, with the rest of the team, the way that you just see him, you score. This, there's no reason why this guy shouldn't just be scoring boatloads of goals. If they, can, if they can crack that enigma, I think they'll do really well with him. Mm. I think he's, he's in the wrong team, particularly in the wrong team now that the way that Tottenham play football now. Uh, I don't think Tottenham need a, a big number nine. I, I know he's a more than a big number nine. He's a very, very, very skillful guy. We threw shade on him actually, didn't we, during the World Cup because he showed this blinding piece of skill during one of the games, but but it was actually because he was bailing himself out of a mistake that he'd made. He's, I don't think he's as complete a player as all of that, but I do also feel that if he was to take a drop down, he should be a top four striker. I think he would do great guns at a mid-table Premier League club, who I think would probably be more inclined to build themselves around him. Um, so I think he's sort of like sat in this kind of like nether world 
uh, or is just maybe not quite prolific enough to be able to justify big teams building the team around him. And, and that's, I think, where he's a bit short. But I mean, he's Brazil's number nine. I mean, you know, he's clearly a player of tremendous quality. Yeah, totally. And I think if he was playing for someone like Marseille, and you're watching him in the Champions League every week, and you think, bloody hell, look at this guy, because he would be scoring tons of goals for them. Yeah. Or if he was playing in, in Istanbul, playing for Galatasaray or something yeah. like that, I mean, he'd have a job getting Icardi out of his seat. But for example, yeah. you know, you know, if he was playing at a team that, you know, was winning more games, you know, in the, I mean, Bayern Munich, for example. <laughs> I mean, Bayern Munich have got an excellent striker and and I don't know. But I mean, or, or, or yeah, Marseille, or one of the one of the big Italian teams. I mean, you yeah. know, you could certainly see him doing fantastic work for any of those top four. Italians that Roma have signed Lukaku. You know, for example, uh, you know, there's Inter, AC Milan, you know, Juve, to an extent, mm. you know, all would do. Well. I mean, if Ozyman had gone, mm. then I wonder whether Napoli might have looked at Richarlison as a, as a potential replacement there, you know. But, but, so, but he just doesn't have the numbers. That's, that's the thing. But he doesn't, no. Yeah. No, you need a, he needs coaching and, and he needs some trust. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's a risk, risky yeah. signing. Yeah, because he'll be expensive as well. Not even the Saudi Pro League came in for him. So there you go. That's <laughs> that's, yes. that's a right slap in the face, that isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not that good, mate. You're not Saudi Pro League good. Uh, yeah, well, well, one player who as well who isn't going to the Saudi Pro League, and it, it looked like he might be, is Jaden Sancho. Square pegs and round holes again. Terry, I mean, I knew you were on holiday when this all came off, but yeah, did you stay across the situation there? And, I did, yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, it's just pretty depressing. I mean, I, I'm everyone, I'm a regular long time listeners now, what a massive Jaden Sancho stan I am because of his time at Borussia Dortmund. And I said at the time, and I hope I'm on record as saying at the time that going to Manchester United was a big mistake for Jaden Sancho, it was the wrong club, the wrong time of his career, and the wrong time in their story, frankly. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was not up to it as a coach, I think objectively people could see that and they were at a stage where they just you know he needs to be slotting into a team that already works and there aren't many of those teams out there to be perfectly honest with you although he was quite keen to leave Dortmund I think that he's been severely misadvised by going to Manchester United because they were just not ready for Sancho and I don't believe that Sancho at the age that he was was ready for him I didn't anticipate that it would backfire this horrifically and obviously, there's things going on there with Jaden Sancho that we don't know about, but we, we can assume, or imagine that he's having a very troubled time there. He was given time off by his coach. It would appear that they've lost patience with him and with the way that he behaves in the training ground. How much of that is linked to anything deeper or darker that's going on with Jaden Sancho, we don't know. It's very unusual for coaches to go public in this way and to scapegoat him in this way, or it feels like he's being scapegoated. And now he's stuck there at least until the next uh, window opens because, yeah, it would appear that, it, that the Saudis didn't want him or maybe maybe Jaden Sancho didn't feel that that was the right move for him at this time in his career. But it'll be interesting to see. There is talk and has been talk for a while now that Dortmund would love to have him back. And I wonder whether or not maybe they might try and see if they can facilitate that in the window, in the winter window. Yeah, I mean, it's just so disappointing. I don't really know where Jaden Sancho could have gone back to England that would have been right for him because he he wouldn't have gone back to City because he he'd left there and Chelsea's obviously a bit of a bin fire. It was it's just a bit of a shame that the state of the Premier League at the time just wasn't wasn't ready for a player like that. He was England's best forward for Euro 2020, and Southgate 
ignored him and then used him in the penalty shootout in the final. I don't think that has helped. Mm. You know, I just the the way his confidence has just eroded is just extraordinary. He was a phenomenal player at Dortmund. It's extremely disappointing and depressing that it's come this way. And in so far as I know about this and I know nothing about what's going on, you know, I do wish him well and I I hope he's okay. You don't normally hear coaches are so direct about an individual player just saying that he wasn't doing well enough in training or he wasn't reaching the standards that he should be in training, i.e. basically phoning it in. Do we think this is a tactic from, from Ten Hag or are we just seeing sort of his Dutch directness there? And maybe he doesn't realise that English coaches wouldn't say that because that would cause all manner of problems. I think he's a smart guy. I think he probably knows what he's doing. Yeah. You know, he's hoping to get some kind of reaction out of him. But yeah, it is it is unusual, as you say, to call a player out. I and mean, if you're going to bollock someone, you should do it privately and not publicly. And, and what he said, I think, was, again, you could be right. It could be a cultural thing. But I, it did leave a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth, uh, that. And I, I don't like seeing any manager doing it. Even Josie. He would make himself look silly rather than knock his team just to take the pressure off them. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a strange one for him. As well as that, I mean, I agree with Terry. I think going to Manchester United for any young player is probably just not the right thing to do. It feels like they're still in transition from Alex Ferguson. Hmm. And, and I think and I think the long view of history will, will see that that's the case. It's going to take them ages to turn that tanker around. And it's just a real shame um, that it's, well, let's hope it hasn't spoiled a young man's career. But describing a player um, like that almost kind of insinuates there's some kind of laziness or there's some kind of attitude problem, which Mm. is clearly what he was saying, the latter anyway. And I think that can affect what other coaches that may be interested in bringing him in uh, may think as well. So it could really affect his career, certainly in the short term. And if they were trying to uh, offload him, that probably wasn't the right thing to do. So the long answer to your question, Graham, is I think he, he's hopefully trying to get a, a positive reaction uh, out of him. But, I mean, thank God he didn't go to Saudi Arabia. He's, what, 23? 23. I mean, that would just be what a what a waste of a colossal talent. Uh, hopefully he'll find a way through. And if it's not at Man United, he, he, he'll, I'm sure he'll find it somewhere else. Hmm. Bring him to Palace for half a season. He's a Londoner. Bring him to bring him to South London for half a season. See whether or not that helps him, and um, they'll love him. Do you know what? That wouldn't be such a bad idea. I mean, Wilf made the trip back, and it and it did him. That's no exactly what I got in my mind. Yeah, I'm thinking about Wilf. Yeah, there are parallels between the two, actually, aren't there? Well, yeah, yeah, well, Wilf, yeah, Wilf was very, very seriously slandered um, while he was uh, he was yeah. signed by by Alex Ferguson, who then left, and he was seriously, seriously slandered when he was there and was and was back um, without being given an opportunity to. It was one of the many reasons why Manchester United are not a suitable football club for young players, mm. and their due diligence also is absolutely wretched as well. Clearly, yeah, um, given given some of the other stories that are going out there as well, this is not a club for young players to go. Man United need experienced. Premier League footballers to come in and guide them through. They also need to clear out at the top as well. And it is not a suitable environment for a young player who spent the previous two years playing in another country to come into. Jaden Sancho should come to Crystal Palace and play for half a season there. uh, And then he should go back to Borussia Dortmund. That's the master plan then, isn't it, Terry? Yeah. And then Gareth Southgate leads after Euro 2024. Pep Guardiola comes in and Sancho scores the winning goal in the 2026 World Cup. 
that's my master plan. I've got it all mapped out. It's all that's... mapped out. Yeah, it's too early for 2024, isn't it? Because that's yeah. not, not going to happen. But 2024 it is coming, isn't it? It's not. We haven't got, got too long to wait. And it is an international break. So we should talk a little bit about international football. And especially the Euros. Because big story in Germany, who are the hosts, of course is that they've done something that they haven't done in the 96 or so years that they've had a men's national football team. Yang, can you guess what that is? They've asked him not to wear... Oh, no, I don't know. Sorry. I was going to make a really crass joke about Lederhosen and it was been shit. <laughs> you see, you should have followed through. No, you no see, because you it would have just through. been... That's just typical. Did you, you see... Did you see that uh, Thomas Muller um, made uh, Harry Kane sit down wearing lederhosen and they had vice fear? Yes. That was good to watch. Yeah, yeah. the, the, the Muller-Kane bromance is, is, is quite the, the media spectacle, it's got to be said, in, 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 in Germany. It is. Uh, you know, um, I'm not quite sure whether, what, what, what people are calling it now, but uh, I think uh, Kula, maybe, you know. is uh, but, uh, but, of course, Graham is referring to Hansi Flick, the coach who was fired. Yes, yes. First time, first time that, the, uh, that the DFB have ever fired national team coach. Ever. Is that right? So they've always left of their own accord or the contracts ended. Is that yeah. how it's been? Yep. Or their right. contracts not been renewed or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, wow. I mean, they've had some close calls, but I mean, even Derek Ribeck, who was terrible, he ran his course. So they've got rid of him and they're not just got rid of him, they've got rid of him in the middle of the break. So they still have to play a game yet. They've not even let the guy host France. That's how bad it got. Okay, well, let's get some more into the details here. This isn't just about being spanked at home by Japan in a friendly, is it? It goes a bit deeper than this, doesn't it? No, it's not. But although, obviously, that is clearly the last straw on the camel's back. Because, obviously, as you know, they lost to Japan in the World Cup, and that was something of a humiliation. Japan, obviously, a top 10, top 15 side now. Yeah. Clearly, a demonstrably better team than Germany. And I think that the reality of their failure just hit them home so badly and it's such a humiliation to lose at home to a team who you know it's one thing to say look at the stats look at the results look at the head-to-head Japan are a better team than Germany but it is very very difficult to acknowledge it Mm. the truth of that and I think Germany like a lot of the senior international teams and it's not just a German thing it's definitely an English thing too there are some results against some teams that even though objectively they're quite reasonable results. They're just psychologically, culturally, they're just something goes snap in their mind. And they've known for some time that their system is broken, but they've not really been willing to face up to it. They made some changes after the World Cup. They got rid of Oliver Bierhoff and they replaced him with Rudy Fuller. That's the sporting director. But they didn't replace the coach. And then they got to the point now where something's just gone snap and said, so we need to make a change. And <clears throat> we can't even give this guy another game. We're going to send him his marches in the middle of the training camp. I mean, it's very sad for Hansi Flick because, remember, this is a guy who's won, as a coach, has won everything with Bayern Munich um, and is one of the principles of the what is now being discussed as the Löw era. And that starts in 2006 with Klinsmann, where Jogi Löw was the assistant coach and did most of the tactical work and goes all the way now through to the end of Hansi Flick who was, of course, for many years, Yogi Love's assistant in the national team. And so that era, that kind of or what you might call the Das Reboot era, um, 
plug for Raphael Honigstein's book. Sell that guy's book more than I sell my own over the last couple of days. Um, <laughs> that's what's coming to an end. So there's a real end of an era kind of feeling to it. But of course, nobody really knows what happens next. And that's the difference is that there's no plan as to what happens next. I mean, you've watched them play. Are they crap? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, they suffer from with a, like a lot of international teams, like a lot of teams that have got good players that they just don't seem to want to take their chances. I don't think it really matters whether or not they're crap. I think what it matters is that they've acknowledged that whatever they're doing doesn't work and hasn't worked for a sufficiently long time now that they can't just put it down to bad luck. I had the, um, the dubious pleasure of watching uh, the German national team All or Nothing documentary series, which dropped to coincide with this international break. And it focuses very heavily on Hansi Flick. I was watching it while all the drama was unfolding yesterday as we were recording this afternoon. And Hansi Flick was being sacked while I was watching all of this. And suddenly the whole context of that documentary changes. And you have to be careful with these documentaries because they're filmed and edited in such a way as to sometimes put forward a particular perspective. But it has to be said that Hansi Flick did not come out very well. I mean, he was there was a strong shades of David von Brent. Brent spelt with a DT at the end. Um, <laughs> and, and I think the one that's doing around at the moment is the Grey Geese. He showed a video and said, be inspired by this video. He showed a video and there was just a geese flying. And they were all about the Grey Geese who flock. And when they fly together, they fly about 10% faster. Obviously, anyone who has their ground on basic physics understands why this is. But he was using this as a metaphor as to how, as a team, you know, we all work together and we get better. And it really was sort of like, you know, Babby's first metaphor. It was pretty, I was quite shocked as someone who's never done any proper leading, uh, you know, in my career. I was pretty shocked at how that would look. And the look on this player's face is just like, like, just like, what is this? And it, there's one instance, sorry, I will stop in a second. It, it, there's one instance where he loses his shit uh, in the meeting after the Japan game. Prior to this, there'd been this whole thing. That every time he said something, like the backroom staff would then, when he'd finished, you know, the backroom staff would like start on a round of applause. And then, you know, all the players would join in and say, yeah, yeah, right, let's go. Yeah, come on. And at the end of this one, he says, right, come on, lads, let's go. And then the backroom staff again, blah, 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 and all the players just get up and fuck off. <laughs> not interested in him at all and you're just sitting there going this is really really bad watch it it's a great it's i mean you watch it now because it's just total car crash i had to put myself on mute when you described that terry because i absolutely lost my shit that's so funny oh my god i can't wait to watch that that's so but Jan, imagine it now and he's wearing red trousers <laughs> Oh, dear. I'm definitely watching that. And that's all in German, isn't it? There's no easy English version. No, there's no anglicised version, which is a shame. But <laughs> you can enable subtitles and, and you're away. But yeah. don't deny yourself that. As a, But if you're English, do not deny yourself this, Schadenfreude. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, England, they drew with Ukraine at the weekend. That's their only competitive game in this break and uh, the other game is oh it's a very special one isn't it Jan because it's the 150th anniversary of the first international ever yeah in 1872 Scotland played England uh, in the first ever football international actually there's a really good article in the athletic by Tim Spires um, and he talks about how obviously they played by a different set of laws back then 
and, and he, he goes through it and it's very funny and, and very informative as well um but yeah it's um it made me made me think that you know we i mean we obviously play scotland quite a lot they're just up the road it's an easy fixture to arrange if you fancy a friendly um but it is an incredibly historic uh, fixture sometimes for really good reasons sometimes for not so good reasons um but yeah i'm actually i'm actually going to watch that tomorrow it's my son's birthday and we've got family plans and I mentioned this and he went, oh, yeah, we should definitely watch that. It helps as well when you've got somebody from north of the wall living across the road from you as well. So there'll be a, a proper Anglo-Scottish occasion tomorrow. But, yeah, looking forward to it. We should do it more, shouldn't we? Well, we used to do it all the time, didn't we? Yeah, it used to happen every year that we play Scotland. they come down here, win a game and then break our goalposts. All that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's no. how it works. That's, every that's, every that's year, that's how it, it works. Yeah. Every, yeah. Um, one time. One. one it, time. Happened, it happened once, <laughs> but we never stopped banging on about it. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, that's so carved into the English um, view of, of this particular fixture that you would think that it happened every single time we played them. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, there were far more famous games that were played far more famous wins for scotland as well i'm thinking in 1967 and there was one in the end of the 20s there which changed a lot as far as england's approach to international football uh, was concerned but this one is just a friendly and of course it is a bit late for the 150th anniversary the 150th anniversary was in november last year so but it this is close as far as international football's concerned um terry do you miss the old days of the home championship i do actually yes i do and and we'll we'll take any opportunity to argue for their reinstatement I do like derby games and I do like the british derbies obviously it's best to see them in games where you know, there's an awful lot riding on it. So it was great to see, you know, England, Scotland in the Euros. It's great to see England, Wales in the in the World Cup. But I do feel that perhaps the time has come for us to maybe think about whether or not the British home internationals might be worth revisiting. I, I don't normally say this, but I look at things like the Six Nations in Rugby Union and look at that and think that's a very successful tournament. Despite the obvious flaws in the sport that they're playing. It's a very successful tournament. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, no, no, it's great. You, you rugby union guys, you're all right. Um, <laughs> but but it clearly has worked. So it's worked for a number of reasons. One of which obviously is good marketing and good organisation, good event management and stuff like that. But I think that this is something that we could perhaps do. We have a fairly unique position in international football in that we have a united kingdom and we also then have obviously very very close ties with the republic of ireland as well and you know we have you know four nations not including the republic of ireland in one state and that is unique in international football and feel that perhaps it's something that could be looked at i appreciate there are huge counter arguments against this much larger from, from club fans are going not more international games and obviously the hecticness of the international schedule so i wouldn't argue for it by coming back every year i would certainly suggest that it might be worth having a look at maybe you know in the quieter summers mm. i think that the where the comparison to the six nations which is a brilliant tournament it falls apart is that you've got the not the home nations but you know what i mean the the, the nations and uh, the republic of ireland those are some of the best teams uh, in rugby union in the world and True. so and so selling that is is an easy thing to do unfortunately i'm not going to 
you know, talk like an English exceptionalist. There's plenty of that around um, on any channel you care to watch. But all of the countries that would play in a home plus uh, the Republic of Ireland uh, competition uh, go through cycles of being dreadful. Um, and sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not. And as well as that, even when they are playing well, there's very few world-class players knocking around in those sides, even when they're playing well themselves. So it's harder probably to market that as well, uh, which is a real shame. And then add into that, you could argue that historically England are the strongest of those sides. And if you are a Northern Ireland or a Wales, you know, that, that's a, that Wales is a very good side at the moment, but, you know, in one of their uh, troughs, if you like, you're probably not going to want to go to Wembley and or invite England up and have yourself hammered. So I would love to have it um, just for purely romantic reasons, because I used to like when, well, the tail end of that was the Rouse Cup, wasn't it, when England used to play Scotland, but only for a few years. But in my mind, that spanned my whole childhood. Um, so, I, yeah, I would love to see it back, but I think there are a lot of issues that, that prevent that from happening. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to happen. And, no. and and your point about the Six Nations is absolutely bang on. Six Nations are de facto European Championships for Rugby Union. And the, this would definitely not be that. So, no, I don't think it's going to happen at all. But, I mean, I certainly would like to think that it would be good to get some games on with, with the other British nations, uh, maybe on a more ad hoc basis. And I certainly mm. think England should be playing Scotland a lot more. There is certainly capacity for it over, say, a period of, say, four years say between World Cup to World Cup, that you could get not home and away, just as it used to be, because they'd only play each other once in it. It used to be played over a whole season uh, when it first started. Now, when I remember watching it, it was a post-season thing, wasn't it? Mm. It would be that that sort of immediately after the FA Cup final, it goes straight into the home internationals. And it would be squeezed in between that and a World Cup as well. So usually they, they would have that as the warm-up there. And of course, you know, time has changed and you want to have other warm-up games before World Cups. And I suppose that's it, really. I think, really, I, I guess it died because it just wasn't interesting enough. It was boring yeah. seeing them play the, the, the same teams over and over again. But I, I do think that there is capacity there. I personally think that the UEFA qualifying is just ridiculously long anyway. It doesn't need to be this this long. We've got the Nations League now. That should exactly that should compress that that need for qualification campaign and freeing it up for had to have more interesting games. And I know developing countries need to develop, so they need to be exposed to playing teams uh, like England and even Scotland as well. But no, it's like, I, I'm bored of seeing England beat crap ordinary teams. This is why people have no interest in international football. All right, I'll qualify that. This is why people have no interest in qualification for international tournaments. They love international tournaments. Everyone loves international tournaments. People watch it and people sell stuff off the back of it like nobody's business. So everyone loves it. It's all very, very, very popular. So I certainly think that now with the Nations League, and the Nations League is here to stay, and the Nations League for women starts this weekend as well. But I certainly think that there should be a shake-up of how we qualify for tournaments. And yeah, pre-qualifying, what have you, but bolster the Nations League. It's there. It's We've got it there. Why don't we use it, Terry? Come on. 
Well, I, I mean, I used to defend the democratised version of qualifying for the European Championship, the World Cup by UEFA, because I think it was always necessary for the small teams to be able to participate against the bigger teams. I think it helped with their development. But that was before the development of the Nations League. And now you've got a far more rounded calendar and you've got the opportunity for teams to qualify via the Nations League, which I think is a you know lower ranked teams to go into playoffs to qualify for the European Championships via the Nations League, which I think is brilliant. I think the Nations League has worked extremely well on that. And I think that that means that you can justify now morally, uh, and certainly in terms of the calendar, you can justify using a points-based system, using the rankings for top teams to go into the European Championship, certainly, and arguably for the World Cup. No, in loads of other sports, that's how they do it. And then they have, they'll have like, you'll have the, like the World Snooker Championships, you have the top 15, and then you have the remaining 15, you know, they go through qualifiers. I'm not suggesting that we use those proportions, but I am suggesting that the top ranking teams probably should get a buy straight through. And then that allows them time in the calendar for them to be able to have premium fixtures against, say, a South American opposition, or indeed find some time in your calendar to be able to sort of like, do a, a couple of derbies and stuff like that where you might get more interest. And certainly, for example, if you put aside the home internationals idea, which is a bit of a daft one, um, but, you know, we're seeing, you know, the finalissima was a success. Uh, I think that the commonable UEFA axis is going to grow stronger as a consequence. And I think that we're going to want to see a desire for more games. Uh, you know, there was talk about the South American teams participating in the Nations League. I don't know whether that will happen. But I think that they could do that. And I think you could morally say that because we now have the Nations League, which works and is functional and I think gives a fair crack of the whip. Certainly for the Euros, World Cup is more problematic. But, but certainly for the Euros, I think that there's justification for it now. It's a change in view from me, which doesn't happen very often. But I've changed my, my mind on that because things have changed. Things have changed. I mean, the, the world has changed. I mean, it, we've been doing this for a long time. And football has changed immeasurably. The Nations League, we've been following it from day one, haven't we? Day minus one, mate. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, yeah. Well, it was actually minus quite a few, actually, when we started. It wasn't it? It certainly yeah. was. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, with a lot of good ideas, they get watered down because everyone has sticks their oar in. And international football, it's not everyone's cup of tea, obviously. But there is so much stuff we could do to make it better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I really like uh, that, that idea, Terry, of, uh, of, of having the bigger teams through. But I, I think as well, you made me think of this when you talked about the South American teams taking part. And I kind of winced thinking of all of the polar bears that are going to be engulfed in flames because of that. Yes. And then I just thought the having a home nations plus the Republic of Ireland um, is a, a really good solution to having international football with a bit of edge, edge on it. And you don't have to go and burn a load of whale blubber to make it happen um so um yeah bring it on <laughs> they will though they'll get on a plane from wembley to cardiff won't they we are acting like you know we've got a choice in this matter climate change is real and pretty soon we will have to stop having d- yeah. doing this you yeah know? i mean we might not be around to see it but that's the reality of the situation mm, but i mean yeah. I, I i'm choosing to live in a somewhat more optimistic world that we'll get past this and we'll, we'll turn this around. But but no, that's, you know, the reality is it's going to become very difficult to hold these tournaments over long distances and the world's about to get a lot, lot larger. But uh, anyway, that's that's a bit grim, but mm. there it is. Well, just to lighten up that on, that on that point, they could get the train. And in the article I mentioned earlier, in England travelled up to face Scotland in that first ever international game. They took a direct train 
from London to Glasgow, and it took them 12 and a half hours. Imagine how much coal they had to burn to make that happen. <laughs> that was an uncomfortable journey. Very uncomfortable. Still, they bred them tough back then. There are some uncomfortable journeys this weekend. Did you like that one? It's, that was brilliant. I've actually wept. There's a, tear, there's a tear in my eye. I did like that one. Thank you. Um, starts on Friday night. Uh, Leverkusen, that's a long train uh, over to Munich, isn't it? Are they going to come back with anything, Terry? Always a distinct possibility. Oh, I'm really intrigued about this because we really are going to see the metal of Bayer Leverkusen this season just to see how good they are. Everyone knows that Bayern Munich did not have a good transfer deadline day and they've missed out their short this season on players. So, yeah, we're all looking forward to that. And the glorious possibility of Nathan Teller and Harry Kane being on the same pitch together. You wouldn't want to miss out on that, would you? Hello? Is this on? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and Jan, on Saturday night, Saturday night's all right for fighting, uh, Cardiff versus Swansea. Who on earth thought that would be a good idea? On Saturday night, so they can all spend all day drinking before they turn <laughs> up. Yeah. Good luck, South Wales, please. Both of those are going to be in the box set. And uh, also we've got a Milan derby there as well on Saturday. So that's that's going to be a bit tasty as well. And if you want to see what we think of all seven games that we're going to cover this weekend, then get along to sofpodcast.com and click on the link for the weekend box set. And you'll get it in your email on Friday lunchtime. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, depends when, when, I, when I can do it before I go away. Um, but that is all we have time for this week. So, from me, Graham Sibley, from Jan Bilton, and from Terry DeFellow, it's goodbye. 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 You can contact us through our website, sofpodcast.com, via Twitter, at Sound of Football, or on facebook.com slash sound of football. While it was all unfolding, the drama, I was watching the All or Nothing series. There's some interesting things that came out of that. Cool, okay. Because it's not likely that people would have got around to watching it yet. And also, it's, it's in German, so you need to enable subtitles and stuff like that. There's no anglicised version of it. And so I don't know how many people will watch it. So. Oh, really? They haven't got someone dubbing um, Handy Flick then? Or... Alas, no. <laughs> I mean, that would be good if they got Wolf Carla in or something like that. <laughs> Is Wolf Carla alive? I don't know. But then they went, well, Kurt Jürgen, oh, he's probably gone as well. Why are all the German actors that I know are all probably dead or half dead? <laughs> Anton Differing.